The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, and today I have a very special guest with me, Dawa Tartin Phillips, who is the CEO of Empowerment Holdings. This organization focuses on teaching mindfulness-based leadership and conscious business approaches. Adela has a very intriguing life and a very intriguing path to where he is today. He currently is a research specialist at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at University of California, Santa Barbara. And he's also the founder of the Institute of Compassionate Awareness, which provides secular meditation training to school children and youth. It's extremely successful, and we're going to hear more about that. Welcome to Leading Conversations, Sawa. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here. I'm glad we are able to uh, have this time together. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and a heroic effort on your part. I know you just returned from Bhutan last evening, and so it's probably been about 12 hours <laughs> since you landed, and here we are. Um, so we will, we will be mindful of, you know, keeping you awake. <laughs> you know, keeping it away. Oh yes, no, no worries. The the flight back <laughs> went to Thailand and Japan, so I had had a chance to rest a little on the plane, and I'm I'm feeling actually quite well. Oh good, glad to hear that. So we are really privileged to have you with us, Bella, and I I know that everyone is going to want to know a lot about your background. Are you in Santa Barbara today? I am in Santa Barbara today, yes. Um, I am uh, co-leading a research center here at the university called the Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential uh, that we founded earlier this year. And so I am uh, actually in Santa Barbara today, where, where I also live with my family. Oh, wonderful. We'll have to hear more about that as well. So, Dava... Um, as I was, I've been learning more about you, and I so appreciate having the opportunity to get to know you in the last couple of years. And your approach to life is very interesting in that you see the world through the eyes of possibility. And, you know, not everybody has that ability to do that. But I wonder about your younger years. When you were a child, think about go way, way back. When you were a child, did you have exposure to the whole concept of um, enlightenment or the world is a wonderful place or, you know, 
let's become deeply aware of ourselves in order to be better in the world. Did you have any exposure to that as a child? Um, I, I, I did have some exposure to, let's say, experimental or experiential living. Um, my parents met in New York City in the 60s and uh, were a biracial couple, which at the time itself was a challenge to conventional norm. My father originally is from Trinidad and Tobago, and my mother is German, and they uh-huh. shared stories with me about how just walking down the streets in Manhattan uh, was uh, a challenge as a biracial couple at the time. And uh, they started a family in Manhattan. Later, we moved to Europe where I and my brothers were raised. Um, but all, let's say, through our childhood, uh, we were exposed to unconventional means of uh, child rearing and we attended some very innovative elementary schools that focused on experiential learning just to expose us to, um, let's say, uh, uh, best thinking, you know, how to really allow children to unfold their potential and capacity. But, you know, my, fa- my family struggled like many do. Um, my parents later divorced, and I think the cultural differences between them were quite significant. Um, but as a, as a child, as a youth, as a young man, I had to work on integrating those differences in myself. And yeah. I think what our parents, yeah, I think what our parents provided us with was somewhat the permission to experiment and to uh, find our way and navigate our way. Uh, they provided some tools such as meditation uh, early on in our childhood. But other than that, they didn't expose us to too many rigid belief systems. Hmm. That's uh, very fortunate for you as we consider the um, kind of Western approach to teaching children. You know, it's the traditional Western approach, um, which is very much kind of the drilling into um, the right answers rather than teaching them how to think. And there's a large movement going on these days to help that change and to teach kids how to think and become more aware of themselves. And that's really what um, drove you to create this program, teaching kids how to meditate. Talk to us about that. Well, there's two passions that I focus on in my work. One is mindfulness and education, and the other is mindfulness and leadership and uh, organizations and businesses. And the reason really for that focus is that I believe we need to empower uh, our leaders as well as our future leaders, which is what I see children as, uh, with the, the right understanding and the right skills to thrive in a quickly changing environment and uh, modern, you know, society. Um, I just got back from Bhutan, as you mentioned, and I gave a talk there at the Royal Bhutanese College, which is the first private university in Bhutan. And Bhutan itself is a, uh, what's called a Buddhist kingdom. It is, uh, it has its first democracy that uh, was instituted in 2008. So it's a very young democracy, uh, but they have a rich cultural history of contemplative practices, and yet their youth as well are thirsting for 
easy-to-use, evidence-based practices that can connect them with themselves rather than with an overarching dogmatic framework or belief system for which to operate. And so we focus really on mindfulness and education because it allows children to reconnect with who they are. And it allows children to acknowledge an, an inner wealth that for part of the Industrial Revolution really didn't play such a significant role because we wanted to raise and educate worker bees. Um, but today, in today's world, uh, with so many technological advances, really people have to think differently about what they're educating themselves and their children for. And mm-hmm. I think the focus on understanding how to bring meaning in your life and how to express your unique gifts in an information age and you know, subsequently in an age of meaning where it's really about finding direction through all the information that's available uh, places uh, a much more significant focus on a child's ability to be present and to relate intelligently to their inner world into their relationship system. And these kinds of skills really are not taught in schools. And uh, there is a push um, from legislators and policymakers and educators to rethink about the kinds of life skills and, and uh, tools that we want to teach our children in order to thrive. And mindfulness is one of them that really emerges with a strong evidence base and where the science has shown uh, just the, the vast amount of benefits that a human being stands to gain from cultivating their attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have a lot of experience on um, focusing your attention and cultivating mindfulness. So take us back, as, and many people may not know this about you, but take us back to, um, oh, I don't know, maybe about 20 years ago. Um, when you decided to study deeply and practice Buddhism training as an ordained monk, how did that happen? Yes. Well, when I, you asked me about my childhood, I, I remember... I remember two significant events in my childhood. Uh, one when I was six and one when I was eight that really were centered around understanding who I was and why I was here. And even with the naivete of a child, I spent some time inquiring and asking myself some questions about what my life was going to be about and what really the, the purpose of my life was. You know, questions that we all have, but oftentimes that we don't have the luxury to explore or find answers to. And some of the things that I came about at the time was that my life really was about love and learning how to love, expanding my capacity to love, and finding a way to bring my love into service to the world and service to humanity. And it's really that intention, you can say, that as a young man brought me into the monastic life. Um, I, I realized that I needed further training and that some of the questions I had could only be answered through contemplative practices. And I was fortunate enough to meet some accomplished meditation masters who happened to be uh, of the Vajrayana tradition. So they, they were from Tibet. And I studied with them for 12 years. Um, uh, 
which I spent in a monastic setting in central France. And of those 12 years, I spent seven years in meditation retreat. Um, but what it really allowed me was to focus on answering some questions that I had. Number one, where was I? Where did I come from? Number two, why was I here? Number three, where was I going? And number four, why really did that matter at all? And having had this opportunity to deeply study the nature of my own mind and the, the, the functioning of my own mind then has, has led me to be able to answer those questions and today help others answer those questions for their own lives so that they can live mm. our impactful life. So let's go back to the, you said you were about eight years old when you started questioning kind of why you were here, what your purpose is. That is correct, yes. So that's pretty young and pretty progressive thinking for an eight-year-old. Um, how did you get to that? I mean, I imagine that part of it was the experiential living, but that's still pretty young for to, to be questioning such something so large in one's life. You know, the truth is that a lot of children have these kinds of questions. Uh, I have been around uh, a number of children because of my work who, who ask their parents where they come from and, uh, you know, what the meaning of life is. But the parents, having often had no, very little training or time for inquiry and reflection themselves, are often at a loss of providing any meaningful answers to the child. And so the child at some point abandons the question uh, and just ah. tries to fit in. Um, but I've actually found uh, many children along the way who are, who are curious uh, in, a, in, in that kind of fashion, but just don't have the context in which those questions are honored or explored with the help of their parents. Well, that's really interesting, you know, uh, because I, as soon as you said they, they asked where do they come from, um, I'm, I'm thinking, well, right, most parents, many parents in the world, when they hear that question, they immediately go to the whole concept of conception and start getting nervous about how do I explain this to a young child, <laughs> <laughs> right? And they completely miss yeah. the point. Yeah, right? And, um, uh, you know, fascinating. I mean, this is part of why I've always said that, you know, I really believe parents should have training to be licensed to become parents. <laughs> you know, things like this would be part of that, you know. It's just, there is no preparation um, for people to really understand how to parent in a way that is, so effective and, and so empowering for their child. Um, and so it's wonderful to see that when it, it, when it actually does happen. Um, and and so, so you were eight and you were asking these questions. How old were you when you decided to, to um, start training um, in the monastery? Uh, it's a, it's a, so I was uh, 25 years old when I decided to uh, become a monk, uh, but it took another two years until I ordained. So I ordained at 27 and I, uh, returned to, uh, the laity or what we, you know, basically, uh, uh, modern, uh, Western society, uh, as a layman, 
in 2008. Okay, so so then the question in my mind is, so what made you decide to then return to the uh, lay life? The same thing, you know, I was uh, asked by my teachers to travel and teach uh, widely and to help others uh, live awakened life. And in the process of doing that, I really discovered that it's very important to understand what people are going through and to share their experiences and to be able to uh, convey the meaning of freedom and the, the meaning of success from within a relatable context. And the monastic life really for most Western families and Western professionals is not a relatable context. And so I left the monastery in order to pursue this, my, 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 my further, to further my mission, you can say, to serve on a larger scale, to um, teach in an authentic way and to let people see that living a conscious life really is perfectly possible if one is a professional and one has a family. Um, but in order to do that, it was really important for me to actually show that uh, we're able to do that in the same, within the same context and within the same lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. I left the monastic life behind in order to become a more effective teacher. Hmm. Lovely. Well, we have more to talk about with Dawa when we come right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. If you're interested in gaining strategies to be more successful both at work and your personal life, check out Turn the Page with host Hemda Mizrahi. It's all about building new habits and perspectives. The show helps you identify the changes you need to make that align with your values and priorities. And then apply these principles to your career, health, social life, and other areas. These are proven techniques that work. Turn the Page airs live Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest today, Dawa Carson Phillips. So, Dawa, we've been talking about how you got to where you are today and a very interesting path, um, which, which really allowed you deep, deep introspection. And as you went out into the world to become a teacher... Um, did you know exactly what you would teach and what form that would take? That's a great question, Cheryl. Um, my greatest passion, I think, uh, is, is uh, assisting people to uh, leverage freedom and to uh, hmm. discover freedom, understand the meaning of freedom, and express freedom in their lives. And... I'm, a, I'm an American at heart. I have a personal connection with our founding fathers and with uh, the founding documents of this country. I have a deep reverence for what it means for a person to experience freedom and to be able to, um, how to say, uh, express that, that freedom creatively in the world. And so the, the, the task that I've chosen... Uh, to work in education and business and really also the, the family relates very much to where people experience their greatest personal progress in life in Western society. Uh, people really face their fears and are uh, meeting the challenges to outgrow their limitations in their responsibility toward their loved ones and in their responsibility toward their professional commitments. And so I think in the West, these two paths are particularly suited for people to actually experience a sense of spiritual growth and development rather than withdrawing from the world and uh, developing within the context of a monastic institution, for example, far away, far removed from society. And yeah. so I focus on helping people live their professional careers as a form of a path to awakening and also live their personal responsibilities, their relationships as a means of a path to awakening. And, and particularly the path of the entrepreneur, you know, where we are personally 100% accountable for the results that we see in the world and 100% responsible for improving those results incrementally. I think that path particularly is suited for someone uh, wishing to awaken and become more conscious um, by living a meaningful life in our time. Mm. Well, and I know that you have a program called Sacred Entrepreneurship, and I'm curious what type of response you've had and who are the entrepreneurs? I don't mean name them, but I mean the type of entrepreneur who steps into this. Yeah, that's a great question. Initially, when I first started the company in 2007, it really was the unique individual that, uh, that they had the interest and the consciousness 
to want to use their professional platform as a means for realizing their potential. But that has shifted dramatically. Uh, today, actually, most people that I meet uh, on all uh, levels of leadership uh, within government, within uh, within businesses, within companies, within let's say educational institutions, you name it, have some sense of seeking personal empowerment and a sense of transformation within their career, within their professional expression. And that was not the same 10 years ago. And so we find actually that increase, an increasing number of professionals realize the opportunity to do work differently and to live their careers differently with more meaning, with more fulfillment, with more impact, with more what we call the psychological paycheck. And as that has grown, so has our ability to, to be helpful um, within organizations or to individual leaders. Hmm. So what type of outcomes are you seeing? You know, when, when someone enters the program or starts even becoming aware that they can see the world differently and then, you know, moves through it and comes out the other side, um, you know, besides being, you know, what I would imagine is a bit more calm and focused, what types of um, shifts are you seeing in them? Well, in, in terms of mindful leadership, we see uh, impact on individual and team performance. We see impact on shifts in organizational culture. Um, trust levels within teams, uh, decision-making within teams, and obviously a host of validated benefits in regards to employee well-being and reduction in stress, work-related stress, and all the detriments that come from that. Um, But more than that, uh, we really see a, a leader becoming fearless and being able to maintain access to their own inner uh, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual resources in real time at the time of need and, and knowing how to maintain composure and how to lead from a place of strength uh, and flexibility both at the same time. And in terms of financial uh, results, we see an average uh, increase in revenue anywhere from 40 to 400% in a two to five year time frame. So the additional access to potential that then expresses itself in productivity or performance then also becomes quantitatively measurable in the kind of return on investment that uh, the people are seeing. You know, Dawa, the concept of fearlessness in leadership has been bantered around for many years. And depending on who the uh, leadership guru or expert is, the definition of leadership fearlessness, uh, it has, it swings, you know, the gamut. And you see some teaching fearlessness about 
really kind of flexing your muscle as a leader, right? Um, kind of just bulldozing your way forward, never giving up, um, failure is not an option. It's, I mean, just, you know, continue to fill in all the cliches. And I had a sense that that's not the type of fearlessness you are speaking of. Talk a bit more about that. Yes, it is not. I think that kind of fearlessness usually stems from a, a lack of self-confidence and an, an mm-hmm. overreaction, an over-investment uh, in uh, using force versus really being connected to one's own internal sense of power, personal power and personal mm-hmm. choice. So the kind of uh, fearlessness I'm talking about is a deep sense of trust that comes because the leader practices trust as a form of investment and uh, realizes that the, the greater the personal trust is, the greater the bandwidth, the greater the openness in the present moment, the, the more the mm-hmm. leader has access to their own training, to their own education, to their own pool of past experiences, uh, to their own intuition, and, and therefore increasingly becomes able to address the challenges uh, from a place of confidence. Um, to quote the fictional character uh, Captain Kirk from the Enterprise, there's no such thing as the unknown, only the temporarily hidden. And so we, we live in a world where as leaders we have to make decisions with incomplete information and we have to be willing to live and work and act in the face of the unknown. But the more we can do that from a place of openness and, and true access to resources and access to greater bandwidth, the more composed, the more clear, the more capable, the more authentic we're able to lead. Mm. And that kind of leadership comes through our own cultivation of mindfulness and awareness and personal presence and the host of other resources that come Mm. from you know, I, I know that um, I'm sure that your clients, some of your clients as well as some of my clients, are, especially if they are young leaders, uh, the fear of appearing not to know the answers is pretty deep. It runs pretty deep. Um, yeah. You know? And so, I mean, it's, it's a big chasm from that to trusting that not only is it okay to say, I don't know, it's also okay to say, I don't know, and, you know, do you, my team, want to go and figure it out, <laughs> you know, and, and just let them do that. Um, do, you, do you notice, uh, uh, like, a tipping point for them? Do you notice a place where they finally are willing to take that risk or is it something that they're willing to try right away when you start working with them? How does that look? Uh, that's, that's a great question. You know, I think there's a, re, a redefining process that happens for leaders um, at that tipping point when they realize that accepting not knowing actually is an asset and yeah. actually uh, provides clarity uh, during a time when pretending to know adds confusion. You see, mm-hmm. uh, pretending to know actually is, a, is an obscuration. It's a, it's a veil that takes the 
the place of true awareness and of clarity of perception. And when mm-hmm. a leader understands that, actually, they are, they are willing to embrace the not knowing as a strength and as a foundation for clear perception um, versus feeling that they have to continue to pretend. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. I love that. And what about you these days? How easy, uh-huh. how easy is it for you to, you know, being... I mean, people call on you a lot because you are an expert, quote-unquote, you're viewed as an expert. Um, you are viewed as somebody who is revered as a teacher. Uh, you have big vision, and people who have big vision often have admirers. Um, you know, do you find yourself having moments of being concerned if you say, I don't really know? Uh, it's interesting, you know, I personally, actually, I have greater and greater ease in admitting when I don't know something uh, because I have more appreciation for the quality of an open question and the journey mm-hmm. that that provides than uh, I have for a, a limiting answer. Um, to give you an example, the historical Buddha uh, took 29 years of his life just to come up with the right question. And that question <laughs> was, how, how do I end suffering? Uh, but once he came up with the right question, it only took him six years to find the answer and achieve awakening. And so I want people to really understand the value of a question and also the value of sitting with the question and uh, actually valuing the journey of discovering the answer. Um, I feel that we're living in a time that is so ripe with change and transformation that to come up with quick answers usually just redirects us into the past and into uh, into uh, paths that we have already tried and already found wanting. And in order to address some of the emerging future effectively, I think we have to suspend some of our past experience and be willing to learn and be open to more uh, transformative expertise and transformative insight uh, as we we chart our path forward. So I actually have to say that I enjoy not knowing more these days than I uh, ever have. But the Mm -hmm. other aspect that think plays into that also is that I realize that we are living in a more collaborative society in which the the wisdom of the community and the wisdom of the crowd uh, begins to take a greater role than the wisdom of the individual. Hmm. And to recognize that, to invest in that, uh, to uh, cultivate uh, confidence in that, I believe as well is one of the, the reasons why I'm personally less invested in having all the answers and, and more invested in co-creating a meaningful path forward. Well, now that is an interesting theory, given where we are in our political situation in the U.S. and somewhat around the world. Um, let's talk about that in our next segment. We'll be right back with Stella Phillips.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more, old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. If you are in the sales field or maybe don't even know that you are, you need a plan to be successful. Every day we are engaged in business and don't even realize that it all comes down to sales. We all have something to say and need to motivate others to the same way of thinking. Sales Execution Optimization. The new SEO is the show that gets you thinking and speaking whatever the product or service. Host Bill Bush will give you the tips you need to succeed. Listen every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest, Dawa Tarkin Phillips. So, Dawa, we left the last segment. Um, teasing a bit about, oh, our political situation in the U.S. and a little bit around the world. Um, and so right now it's uh, mid-October. Our elections will be in early November uh, for the President of the United States. Um, I don't know anyone around the world who... Uh, is not slightly aware of the, oh, what should we call it, absurdness of our current political shenanigans. Um, mm-hmm. you, you said that, you know, we're living in a more collaborative society and that, you know, cultivating the wisdom of the crowd and cultivating the answers from um, more than one individual um, is, you know, really a trend that's just beginning to happen. And yet, as I look at you know, the the whole perspective of what's going on and the way it's going on um, in our political system, um, it seems counter to that. Um, give us your perspective on what actually is taking place. Yeah, that's an interesting question and a complex one. Um, I, I think what's taking place is 
that uh, people are experiencing a great deal of fear and uncertainty. And they are looking to the past for things that gave them a sense of belonging, a sense of status, a sense of uh, identity, and a sense of meaning and success. And yet, those things aren't available for them in the future because uh, mm-hmm. our societies are being redefined by our advancements in technology, by globalization, by challenges on a global scale that can only be solved through the collaboration of mankind, uh, be it climate change or the development of the global financial system. And so we are going through a transformational process for which we have no precedent. And yet... Mm -hmm where we have to redefine who we are as people in order to come out thriving. And I think this kind of, this kind of uh, situation provides some ground for fear-mongering and for stirring people's emotions in order to uh, gain access to greater uh, personal power, personal influence, um, and, and also... Uh, to advance one's own personal agenda. Um, But ultimately, more uh, confusion and more negative emotion is not what's going to help us succeed or help us thrive through these challenges. Uh, And I think the current current political climate and the current election cycle is really the uh, epitome of that state and of that confusion. Underlying this, I've observed that really the, the political system, the educational system, the healthcare system, and many of our other large-scale infrastructures are not so much held back by people's inability to understand them, but really by our lack of awareness about our relationship with money and finance. And it's really our confusion and our ignorance around the meaning and the importance of conscious stewardship of financial resources that is at the heart of this crisis in government and in healthcare and in education. And so I believe personally that we have to uh, elevate our individual consciousness around how we use and how we think about financial resources. And rather than being constrained by outdated uh, models of greed, we have to understand that uh, money and finance are really tools and means by which to uplift mankind and help humanity uh, overcome some of the challenges that we're currently facing. So, so you really think it's about money and finance. You, you, you think it's really about um, that that's the core, that if we fix that part, our perspective on that and the way we view that, that some of this fear will dissipate? I believe if the general public has a higher level of personal empowerment and understanding around the workings of money and finance, they would be less impressed 
by political figures that bring very little more than material success to their platform. And I think the reason why the general public is so impressionable by financially successful, influential individuals is because there's a general lack of personal empowerment when it comes to uh, understanding how to achieve material success for themselves. And I think if we, if, if, if that changes because we are uh, empowering the general public with greater knowledge, which is not something that's currently happening in our education system, nowhere, all the way right. from elementary school, junior, middle school, junior high, high school, um, and, unless people choose a very specialized track, they will have little to no financial education by the time they graduate. Well, and, and even in grad school, I mean, you look at business schools and what are they teaching people about the e- economics? I mean, they're really teaching them about the current system and how to manipulate the current system. They're not teaching people to consider um, or even get innovative around, you know, whether this is good for us or not good for us or if there's a way to, as you say, elevate mankind. I mean, that's not a question on the table in most MBA programs. Correct. Correct. They're they're really just designed to uh, help people find an outlet for their personal greed and ambition. And I think money is a tool that we created in order to serve us. And and then now it's gotten to a point where it's enslaved most modern civilizations. It's the number one cause, stress, and anxiety in almost all civilized societies. Um, and, and that has to change. And I think when that changes collectively, I think we'll be able to also bring changes to our political system. But, you know, even hearing you say um, <clears throat> that it's designed to feed the people's own um, shoes and their own greed, um, you know, that, even that concerns me because we somehow, the interpretation of that statement often is, well, then that makes money bad, and that makes people who have money bad and selfish, and there's no way to consider that good can come out of this. And so it's really this dualistic perspective on what money is, what abundance is, what um, finance is about that keeps us stuck. You know, it's, it's as if there cannot be um, a middle ground or there cannot be a sense that um, you can be a good person and have a great deal of abundance. I mean, how do we get past that? I do believe I, I have a number of clients who are in the uh, in the field of trying to alleviate poverty, uh, not only in the United States but around the world. And I believe poverty is one of the great ailments of our time. Um, Jack Canfield and I have created a program called Awakening Prosperity, which is all about awakening and integrating our relationship with money and. 
healing what we call the money wound, the emotionally afflicted, confused relationship that so many people have with money. And I agree, you know, the, the notion that all is one and that uh, the world is one and that we are one is something that has gained a lot of popular traction. But once it comes to money, we, we change that narrative and we say everything is one except money. Uh, money yeah. is this foreign object uh, to which we have an ambivalent relationship that we don't fully understand and uh, that, we, uh, that generates a lot of negativity and a lot of negative emotions. And I think uh, once people are able to reconcile and really clear up and heal that relationship, they are able to uh, outgrow the consciousness that is underlying poverty, and they're able to also outgrow the systems and the the behavior that perpetuates poverty in our society, whether that's greed or the rejection of money. And oftentimes, whether or not we are pursuing uh, the symbols of money beyond uh, fulfilling our life's purpose or our basic human decency, uh, or we are simply rejecting money outright because we grew up with erroneous beliefs about its uh, spiritual nature and its real uh, purpose in order to uh, bring more happiness, freedom, education, and beauty into the world. I think either way, we have to get back into a healthy, integrated middle um, from which we can operate more effectively. I absolutely agree with that. You know, it, I've been so intrigued with the whole process um, as we look at and as the whole issue of class issues and status issues and the disappearing of the middle class um, becomes so prominent. And it's interesting that the uh, it's almost as if the only answer is if people don't have money. The only answer is if people who have money are willing to give some of it up, not just some of it, but all of it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't help. It, how come we're not thinking of it in a way as elevating everyone? How come we're not thinking of this as a collective in terms of elevating everyone and, you know, maybe even having a different representation or a different exchange of, you know, what we use money as today. But, you know, it seems to me that there are different answers and and it also sounds to me like you are thinking about a lot of these things in new ways. Well, I, I really have found in my life that most of the time when people struggle, the underlying problem is ignorance and mm-hmm. uh, confusion. And I think if we, we look at the way that the current monetary system is set up, it really is uh, operating in the shadows in most people's general consciousness. Uh, which means that I don't believe we need to give up money. I think we need to enlighten it. And we need to really bring it fully into 
the awakened sphere, so to speak. Uh, most of mm-hmm. the ethical conflicts that the candidates are being accused of are motivated by an ambiguous, non-transparent relationship with money. And I think that uh, it is really where the rubber meets the road in terms of our ability to handle some of the uh, global challenges we're currently facing. I think if we can get to a place where the general understanding of how this principle operates in service of mankind can be something that can be shared around the world. I think that Mm. humanity will have made a great step in its evolution. Mm. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about being the number one cause of stress to the amount of 70 to 80% of people experiencing stress and anxiety and confusion around the role of money in their life. So we're talking about significant number of people worldwide. Well, absolutely. And, you know, as with so much transformation in the world, it all begins with us, right? It all begins with each individual in order to create some level of tipping point. It all begins with each of us taking responsibility. And that is that is really what the tone of your work is and what some of your upcoming programs are about. We just have a minute, um, so tell people how they can uh, learn more about your programs and um, get in touch with you. Um, what's, op- what's open for them? Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, people can find, and, uh, find me or get in touch with me through my website, dawatarchinphillips.com. Uh, there's a couple of important programs that we have coming up. One is uh, a program called Awakening Prosperity. People can learn about that at awakeningprosperity.com. It's a program that I have created and am offering together with uh, Jack Canfield, uh, the best-selling author of the Success Principles and Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And it's a online training program to awaken one's individual relationship with money, prosperity, and abundance. Uh, There is a program also called the Mindful Leadership Breakthrough System, and that can be, uh, people can learn more about that at mindfulleadershipbreakthrough.com. And uh, these are online programs that are designed to help people take first steps in their own leadership, in their own development, towards living a more conscious, more present, more awake, more impactful life. Um, So I also want to offer a gift to your audience. Uh, We will make that gift available at www.tartsandphillips.com slash leading conversation. And it will be something valuable for your audience to take some first steps in their own empowerment. Fantastic. That's very generous of you. Dawa Tarchin Phillips, thank you so much for being here today. It has been an honor and a privilege. Uh, Cheryl, the honor is all mine. Uh, As you know, we both work in similar circles, so I look forward to many more valuable conversations and to co-creating an awakened world together. Real pleasure. I love it. Uh, I'm all in. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, Remember, everyone, <laughs> to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.